Hey, Stephen Kent of Beltway Banthas here. I had a couple of requests over the past month for the entire interview with David French to be aired. Uh, we put out this episode where David French and I talk about the Death Star threat of our politics and why we need to rediscover localism. And uh, yeah, it's true. I actually, I use like little bits of, of David Bitt's insights here and there to sort of color and tie the episode together. But the old model of Beltway Banthas was uh, feature-length interviews. And so I was like, you know what? You're right. We should put out that whole episode. So here it is. Um, this is my conversation with David French of the Dispatch about Star Wars politics and his book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. All right. And we're joined now by David French. He's the senior editor at The Dispatch, columnist for Time, and author of the new book, Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. David, welcome to Beltway Banthas, the land of Star Wars and politics crossover. You know, I I am honored to be here because I can think of few things that are fit more in my wheelhouse than Star Wars and politics crossover, except for maybe Lord of the Rings and politics crossover. Those are those are the real nerds, David. It's <laughs> <laughs> Lord of the Rings kids. <laughs> That's right. Um, That's right. No, it's it's really nice to have you. I've I followed your your you know your political writing for so long, but I've also always been delighted uh, when you engage in the Star Wars fandom and uh, offer some Star Wars takes, whether it be in the National Review, Time, or elsewhere. I want to talk to you about the book you just published, and we're going to weave in and out of Star Wars lore while we do it. Um, I, I really found Divided We Fall quite relevant uh, to what we do on this podcast, considering we have two or three trilogies really dedicated to themes of secession and civil war. But let's start with the book. So I dug into Divided We Fall, and to say the least, it's really compelling. I want to start by telling you it's great oh, and you. asking you, yeah, absolutely, and asking you, what is the problem that you've identified and aimed to solve with Divided We Fall? And what do you mean when you allude to the word secession yeah. in the subtitle? Yeah. So the problem is, and this is, I can state it in, in one complicated sentence, <laughs> There is no single truly important social, cultural, political, or religious force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pushing us apart. That if you look at everything from where we live, we're geographically clustering in like-minded communities, to the culture that we consume, which is now increasingly fragmented, to the changing religious composition of the United States, which is secularizing, but not everywhere at the same place, and is often coinciding with the existing geographic divisions, and to our negative polarization and increasing political extremism, that all of these things aren't just pulling us apart. They're pulling us apart in a specifically dangerous way, um, in a way that historically, if you look back at American history, has signaled the possibility of disunion. And and so the reason why I used the S word, <laughs> secession, is that I wanted it to, and it's not saying it's happening imminently. It's not saying that this is something that's inevitable by any stretch. It's to say you just can't keep doing what we're doing and continue to believe that everything is going to be okay. 
And yeah, I, I think part of what you you touch on in, in your answer there is, you know, my ability to dream dark dreams about what could happen with our country purely stems from the fact that secession, civil war, sectarian conflict, it's quite common in human history. Yeah. And even in contemporary news, uh, these things happen on other continents. Our last civil war is barely a century behind us. Um, I mean, do we sort of have a sense of hubris, like an end of history problem when it comes to envisioning how bad things could possibly get? Well, I think that, you know, we often, we, we, we have a, a major recency bias issue to begin with. Uh, so we, we often think we're kind of special when we're not special. We, we maybe think that human nature has gotten better when human nature has not gotten better. Uh, and we often, you know, uh, it's always overblown to say history repeats itself. I think, who was it that said it more? It's more like it rhymes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know, but they had it right. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, history, um, geography, um, diversity, all of these things matter in some really important ways. And I feel like if we if we act as if we can keep polarizing without paying a real price, because I think a lot of the polarizers think that you, you can keep polarizing and all you end up doing is you either win or lose, and then you keep polarizing to try to win again. And then if you don't, you keep polarizing to try to win again. And there is a, there is a structural risk and a structural danger to what we are doing to ourselves. And uh, if, if you look back in history, when you begin to have geographic, dis, geographically dis, distinct regions that believe that their culture, fundamental culture, is under threat, and that that threat is grave enough to where you're even worrying about violence, it creates the conditions for profound instability. And that the point that I make in the book is we we're recreating those conditions right in front of our eyes. And, um, and so it's kind of an alarm, it's trying to be an alarm bell in the night to, to ask people to start to, con to consider sort of the health of the entire body politic as we're walking into these political disputes rather than just the health of your partisan tribe. David, your book is a call to rediscover pluralism and rediscover this buzzword uh, known as federalism. Yeah. For my audience who is not familiar, can you explain the concept of federalism? Because um, it is not what you'd think based on the name. And then could you speak to why federalism rightly has a bad rap with some? Yeah. Uh, well, so federalism is essentially the principle that says as much power as possible is going to be pushed down to the lowest level, the, 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 the government closest to you. So that uh, in in many ways, when you're talking about uh, what is the government that's going to be most relevant to your life on economic policy or most relevant to your life on climate policy or most relevant to your life on education, all of these things would be pushed to the, the level closest to you as much as possible. And so what it means is increased authority for states. It means increased authority for city governments, for county governments so that we have less of a sense that we have to pour all of our energies and frustrations into an increasingly um, an increasingly large and decreasingly responsive federal government. And why is it decreasingly responsive? Because it's gridlocked in part because of our profound divisions. And so it's it so federalism is essentially trying to de-escalate national politics. And I think that, that that's absolutely critical 
de-escalate national politics and make our national elections less important to people's lives. Another reason why that's really important is because, unfortunately, um, prob- a majority of those of us who vote in national elections are walking into the ballot box or walking into the ballot knowing our vote doesn't matter. <laughs> We're in safe red or safe blue states and safe red or safe blue districts. And so we're here, we're voting in an election that has the most impact on our lives, and we have the least impact on the, on the uh, election that has the most relevance. And, and that creates frustration, alienation, and ultimately destabilization. Um, now, why is federalism, when, I, when you put it like that, um, it seems reasonable, Right. But we've kind of federalism is actually over the in many over American history has actually empowered some of our worst injustices. If there has to be a a mistake that's in the original Constitution and Bill of Rights that is is profound, it was that the original Bill of Rights, in addition, of course, to the Constitution uh, recognizing the existence of slavery in the U.S. and and the the an unalienable rights of man not being extended to every member of the American community, the Bill of Rights only restricted the federal government, and so the states had the ability to de- deprive you of due process without violating the Bill of Rights or your rights of free speech without violating the Bill of Rights. And so, what ended up happening is we often, in some of the worst parts of our nation's history, we've had a federalism of the Bill of Rights. <laughs> Which my point in the book is the Bill of Rights is the fundamental social and political compact in the Uni- of the United States, and we cannot have a variation of federalism of the Bill of Rights. That, those are the rights that extend to every American, and we've gotten that backwards often. So my vision of federalism is we all enjoy the benefits of that social compact, but within different communities that have wide variations in the way they approach other issues such as, you know, as I said, climate, um, economics, healthcare, education. Yeah. One of the things that I think is kind of slippery, and you mentioned, you know, sort of that federalism was uh, originally sort of couched in this idea that you know, the Bill of Rights that could begin and end at certain state lines is, you know, it's a heated debate and an ongoing debate about what really are rights. And obviously the Bill of Rights sort of enshrines a certain set of things. But, you know, the average liberal or progressive in America thinks that, um, you know, the, the the choice of abortion, you know, pro-life, right. pro-choice, that that is a right. They think health care is a right. And I, I don't really see how you reconcile some of these differences and Americans to be able to be like, oh, well, you know, I'm fine if uh, my, my Kentucky neighbors are deprived of what I think are their rights as long as I have mine once state over. Um, that just seems to be like a really, really deep cultural rub that would increase animosity. Well, you know, I think that one of the issues is that right now, uh, and, and I actually had some, some really smart folks say, wait a minute, in theory, what you just said, David, sounds great. But in practice, <laughs> and they raise exactly that same thing that, you know, there's sort of this sense that if there is injustice anywhere, there's injustice everywhere. And the the persistent attempt to nationalize everything, however, means that nobody gets to live in the kind of community that reflects their values. Because 
uh, essentially what happens is if I live in Tennessee, the, poli- the, the national political figures elected out of California are too important, are, too, are very important in, in our political life here and vice versa. If you're in, in uh, California, then you are, if you're in California, then the politicians elected from Tennessee are far too important for your life. But what I think I am now seeing actually is some of my progressive friends who were dismissive or even hostile to federalism are beginning to change their minds in part because they had never quite imagined anything like the presidency of Donald Trump. And so if you if you look at California, California has in many ways as a sort of a tactical response to Trump um, become almost radically federalist. Um, it has en- enacted policies that directly defy the administration and have charted a quite independent path um, not independent politically, but, you know, independent from a policy standpoint. And, and so I think an increasing number of people are saying, wait a minute, if I want to live in a polity that, for example, has a single payer health program or something close to it, or has the kind of environmental policies that I like and impacts the environment in a particular way, the only way I can do it is through federalism. Because yeah. otherwise, I'm, ve- I'm very tempted to go down the road of uh, of policy podcasts and ask you about how do we get people to move and, and vote with their feet, um, and actually try to choose what part of the country they want to live in. <laughs> but alas, um, one of the things that you wrote in the beginning of the book reminded me very much of something from Episode One. Actually, Star Wars says many things that are, are timeless and true, and I think chief example being fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate hate leads to suffering. Mm -hmm. In your book, you wrote something that struck me as similar. You wrote, clustering leads to extremism. Extremism feeds anger. Anger feeds fear. And I guess my question to you is, what comes after the fear in your sequence? Well, that's where in the the book is divided into three parts. Part one is lays out that very train of events. It's how we cluster, how we become more extreme, and how we start to to not just dislike, but in some cases outright loathe our political opponents. And then part two says there are two scenarios and they're fictionalized scenarios, a a Cal exit scenario and a Texit scenario that shows that if you build, you know, think of it like this, like, you know, how um, colleges like say, or, you know, you you have big bonfires for say pep, pep rallies. And sometimes for days, people will pile up the wood and they'll put fuel on it and they'll pile it up, pile it up. And all it needs is the the spark for the thing to just, you know, explode into flame. And what our current political situation is doing is, is piling up the kindling. Um, as we polarize, we're piling up the kindling, piling up the kindling. And, you know, there is a description I heard the other day of the pre-Civil War generation of leaders, and they called it the blundering generation. Um, and, and so in some ways, there are ways that America just kind of blundered into the civil war. Um, and, and I've thought a lot about that because I do not think that we're living right now at the, um, shall we say the apex of statesmanship in American politics. (laughs) And so when you combine the kindling and the blundering, you create the potential for things to spark. And, and so what's next after in that train, after the hate, after the fear, after the rage is possibly the spark. And that's what I want to avoid. 
Yeah. Did you read uh, Cass Sunstein's The World According to Star Wars? Because it was very clear to me in your conversations about this book and, and, and some of your theories that you have posited that you are a student of Cass Sunstein and the, the concept of the cascade effect. Yeah, I unfortunately did not read that. So I feel <laughs> so just very good. Illiterate. I, I I was not familiar with um, Sunstein's, you know, kind of more prolific research. I, I learned about him through him writing uh, The World According to Star Wars. And I was curious because you talk about his theories on clustering, um, mm-hmm. and that also comes from the big sort, and cascade effects, which he, he repackaged in his Star Wars book to talk about how rebellions form. Mm-hmm. And he looked at the Rebel Alliance as an example of when like-minded people talking mostly to one another end up thinking more extreme versions of what they thought before after they start to talk. You, you basically put a bunch of rebels in a room and ask them to discuss rebellion and they get more extreme over time. Yeah. And in some cases, the organization itself can get ahead of even its most extreme median member. And that's a deep worry that you have when it comes to our real world associations. No, just the, the, yeah. the clustering and the radicalism. Yeah, absolutely. So I, um, I, I first, so in 1999, Sunstein wrote this article called The Law of Group Polarization. And I remember someone forwarded it to me by email. You know, this, so this is 99. I mean, we're not even having a huge ton of people using email yet. Um, well, it, no, it's spread by then. But someone forwarded it to me by email. And I had just left law school um, and was really had it was a really interesting experience to me. I had never been around uh, two such dramatically contrasting cultures in my life as my evangelical Christian college and then Harvard Law School, and and they just seemed like different people. They were just living on different worlds, just different worlds. And Sunstein's Law of Group Polarization helped me understand why that was the case. That you had critical masses in both of those uh, both of those colleges you had or those institutions you had a critical mass of like-minded people uh quite secular and progressive at Harvard and quite religious and conservative at Lipscomb University where I went to to college and you saw all these dynamics of sort of the the groupthink the increasing levels of extremism when i was at law school was back in the era when people would shout down uh, boo, hiss, shout down people for offering alternative points of view in class, and sort of this first wave of political correctness that um, you know has now morphed and and changed and expanded to a degree. And it really showed me how, and in the article really helped me understand how um, the group or the group dynamics of like-minded clustering, and um, it. You, we've now seen it all around us since Sunstein published that article. And the larger a geographic segment gets and more significant a geographic segment gets with that like-minded clustering, you know, I think the more divisive it becomes in America, in, you know, in, a, in American life. I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of where secession has a tendency to go being civil, civil war, civil conflict. Um, and just to start with your, uh, Cal exit and Texit scenarios mm-hmm. were those kind of like pure, just kind of works of fantasy fiction, or did you do like research to kind of like back up like where that flow of events might go, or is it just sort of a, an idea? So what it is is it takes ex- existing 
um, political controversies and 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 existing um, sort of already threatened political countermeasures, yeah, and it puts them in a sort of a near future frame where all of the various trends that I have outlined uh, regarding group polarization have continued. So, you know, it's a sort of an indefinite near future where we are more polarized, we are more geographically divided, and some of the existing phenomenon that we see in our our political life are overlaid upon that. So, yeah, so kind of like a a, a solid practice and just following things to their logical exactly. Conclusion. It's like a yeah, scenario I mean, planning exercise that's pretty common <laughs> in yeah. both the military and government and corporate life. Yeah, and that is all part of your background. So, on the subject of civil war in Star Wars, you have this thing called the separatist movement. Mm-hmm. It's the driver of episode two and then three and then the Clone Wars as well. And in this scenario, the Galactic Republic, it's composed of thousands of worlds and it's coming apart. What the movies kind of obscure is that widespread secession is coming from a place of actual genuine dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. around the Republic. Real people and real planets have feelings of estrangement, and they feel so far removed from the opulence of Coruscant and those worlds that are kind of clustered around Coruscant that are rich as a result. It's a real movement, and it's not just something that's astroturfed by corporations like the Trade Federation. But what muddies the waters here is that the separatist movement is a vehicle for a shadowy Sith Lord who is pulling the strings and also leading the Republic at the same time, pitting them against each other, where the the goal is total war to drag the Jedi Order down. And so what I'm getting at here is you could have, in theory, had a peaceful secession from the Republic in mass, a huge wave of secession, and no Clone Wars. Right. Have you ever have you ever thought about that? Like, why did it have to be that there was this civil war in Star Wars just over worlds wanting to not be part of the Republic anymore? Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I used to, back in the, um, several years ago, I wrote, um, I wrote some stuff about the, the prequels. And, you know, I had this sort of, uh, this this view that if you look at the prequels in through one lens, it's not super clear that the Jedi are all that awesome. <laughs> um, that they were trying to keep together a, a corrupt republic by force. That there was an actual um, move towards self determination. Of course, exploited and as you said, they you know unbeknownst to lots of people, there was a Sith Lord uh, lurking in the background. But there was a, a legitimate. Uh, quest for self-determination, uh, self-determination, and you know, as a principle, moving from the Galactic Republic to the American Constitutional Republic, is a principle that we have recognized in international separatist movements um, with some regularity over the last couple centuries. Um, and so there is, there was, you know, if, going back to Star Wars again, there was sort of this idea that, hey, yeah, if there is, if the Republic is failing to. Uh, if, if the democratic structures of the Republic are failing, there can be separation. And why does there have to be war to prevent it? Um, or, and, and that was, you know, that was kind of an interesting question, but I would say that if you want, if you're, if you are wanting to harden and solidify a separatist impulse, there are a few better ways to harden or solidify a separatist in, impulse, uh, 
few better ways to do that than to stoke fear of violence and death. And so, right. Um, in fact, that that was one of the so you know, one of the things about we're flipping between the Galactic Republic and the American Republic back and forth here. So let's flip back to the American <laughs> Republic. Let's one, do it. One of the things that the Confederate secessionists did was stoke fear of immediate violent threats to the southern um, to white Southerners. Uh, so no question the South seceded to protect slavery, but why was there such a secession fever at that moment in time? Like what, what is it, what was it about that moment in time that created this secession fever? And part of it was the election of Lincoln led the slave, slave power to believe that it was ultimately doomed, that the balance of power had inexorably tipped against it. So those who were seeking to preserve slave power began to lose faith in the American constitutional processes to preserve it. And they were right to believe that the balance of power was tipping against slavery in the U.S. Um, But why would they then take up arms? And this goes back to um, the John Brown Harper's Ferry raid and the Believe that John Brown was trying to foment a widespread slave rebellion that would have been seen as genocidal, and and uh, uh, in the seminal one volume history of, of World War, I mean of, of the Civil War, McPherson's Battle Cry of Freedom, he talks about how Southern media sort of helped whip the Southern public into this almost unre- just this raging fury that Northerners wanted them dead. And if you read the secession documents, and this is something I lay out in the book from these Southern states, they will time and time and mention the possibility of slave rebellion. In fact, Texas's secession document even raises the complete conspiracy theory idea that the North was trying to poison the South, like literally poison people. Right. And so um, one of the things I I say in my, my book is that You'll know we're hitting the ti- we're hitting a super dangerous tipping point when we move beyond when we go from hey I feel like my culture is under threat to another step which is I think the democratic process is not providing me with the in- you know, the instruments to preserve my culture and then number three and I think that these people actually are violent and dangerous. I just finished my first ever read of Profiles in Courage, um, you know technically with the the name of JFK on it, but it was mostly done by a speechwriter. Um, and I was, I was blown away, David, by just seeing and learning from these accounts of the vitriol in the pre-Civil War era yeah. and the real belief, the real belief that like, like, you know, Southerners and Northerners viewed each other as subhuman and something else. And they believed that they were out to kill each other. And you just sort of laid all that out there. And that raises the stakes so high mm-hmm. that we, you know, you basically tell your people that their backs are up against a wall. And it reminds me in some ways of like the whole Q phenomenon, um, because what makes that conspiracy theory so dangerous is that it delegitimizes political opposition. You, you basically are saying like, oh, right, these Democrats are trafficking children in hidden tunnels and communing with Satan. And so you yeah. have to ask yourself, well, if you believe that then why aren't you raising up arms to stop it? And then, you know, you would have Pizzagate instances happening every single day. And so my question to you based off that is, this all reminds me of of Flight 93-ism. Yes. And you outline that in your book. It basically 
is when the stakes are so high that it's it's fight or die. Could you talk about that that sort of that that term and where it came from and how it applies to what you're trying to to educate people about? Yeah, so um, it it comes from an essay uh, I believe in the Claremont Review books in the 2016 election season. It was written by Michael Anton originally under a, a pen name, but later it came out as Michael Anton and. He essentially said, um, this is the Flight 93 election. You have to charge the cockpit or die. In other words, the American Republic is facing extinction unless you vote for Donald Trump. And and that, and that this was a way that it helped an awful lot of people who had a lot of concerns about Trump to get over their concerns because they said, this is an emergency. And in an emergency, you do things you wouldn't ordinarily do, like support somebody who has a the character flaws that we have long believed to be disqualifying for a public figure. And, and so essentially what he was saying is the stakes of this election are so high, you have to take extreme measures. And, you know, I remember in 2016 how, and not everybody read that essay, but he captured something that was very real in the spirit of the times on the right. Right. Because I can remember having heartfelt discussions with, um, for example, executives of Christian nonprofits, um, political and legal nonprofits, who said to me in all sincerity, if Hillary wins, America becomes a socialist country. Well, Hillary Clinton <laughs> is— Socialists must find that hilarious. I, I know, I know. It, yeah. Hillary Clinton is many things. She is not a socialist, um, not even close to a socialist. But and it, Or if Hillary wins, our churches are going to have all of their—their their religious liberty is going to be destroyed. Uh, if Hillary wins, and you know, you just flow it out from there. And what was happening was that an exaggerated and often misinformed sense of the policy differences between the two parties, which are real and they're important. And I think that there are many Democratic policies that I disagree with strongly, but I don't think that the election of the Democratic Party will render the United States extinct. Um, it will change the country. Uh, and then in two years after, one of the things about this this country is that every two years, the people have an opportunity to provide a check or balance to the direction of this country. But, but so what was happening, though, here was the weird paradox, is that the alarmism was becoming a greater threat than the policy differences. And so what the Flight 93 mentality does is it whips people into a sense of urgent and terrible fear and anger over differences that do not warrant that level of fear and anger, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. And I, I want to go a little bit deeper on this, but it just kind of reminds me, going back to what we were talking about, about like a Sith Lord that's behind the scenes, <laughs> pitting the separatist movement and the Republic against each other. You know, I don't know. I, I don't know that we have that exact same situation, but it certainly feels like there is this malevolent thing that is pitting us both against each other. And I don't know whether it's whether it's social media and Facebook or, or Russian uh, malevolence, but it, it, there's something behind the scenes that is trying to put everybody against each other. And, and we don't really have a way to contend with that. And everybody feels like it's a flight 93 election, which I think, to your point, is why we have to go the way of embracing the pluralistic approach, or there's just no way forward. Right. Well, you know, when you talk about malevolence, I mean, you don't have to, it's, it's kind of like the malevolence is in plain sight. (laughs) It's the, yeah, we have Russian interference, but, but when you actually look at what Russia did, it wasn't that much. Um, 
you know, it, and it wouldn't have mattered. What what Russia did would not have mattered at all in a healthy body. Oh politics. sure, and I don't want to overstate that. I, I don't want to overstate. No, no, no. That at I, all. It's it's one of those like amplifying effects. Well, but but yeah. it became very important. So he, it's funny because I think of Russian interference as both important and not. <laughs> okay, so I just said, you know, the part of it, the the not part of it is sort of like the objective top line things that they did. Uh, hacked a couple of email servers, put some embarrassing emails into the public square, spent a little bit of money on social media. All of that, you know, if you look at it objectively, a healthy body politic could absorb that without much problem. But it became one of the most cost-effective disruption operations in the history of intelligence because it was poured into a very unhealthy body politic. And so... These uh, these rather modest measures became dramatically amplified in importance because they were put into a snarling, suspicious uh, country full of mutual antipathy and enmity. And so therefore, Russian interference actually has mattered for years because it can't. So that's one piece of malevolence that is in front of our faces that has mattered for years because it exploited dysfunction. The other thing is all of the fake news, all of the outrage bait, all of the clickbait. Um, look, I'm, I don't want to draw, you know, not all of these people. Some of these people are just misguided, but a lot of them just don't care. They're like cultural mm-hmm. pyromaniacs and they they like to see the internet burn. They like to whip up frenzy because it is in their self-interest. They and like the to consumers be, of that information like to be angry, and they like and to I be angry. That's, that's something that we have to contend with. Yeah, um, I, you know, I one thing that I when I was reading your portion on sort of the flight ninety three mentality, my mind went in the direction of all right. So you have this massive central government where everything matters too much, a presidency that makes people feel. Um, existentially threatened every four years. Mm -hmm. And how do you get rid of that? How do you remove uh, that pressure and lower the temperature of our politics? And one little analogy that I'm testing out in favor of your desire to de-escalate national politics um, and the stakes from being all-consuming is actually the folly of what the Empire did with the creation of the Death Star, (laughs) which, based based on your third favorite Star Wars movie, Rogue One, if that is still the case... um, Yes. It actually united and supercharged the rebellion movement instead of suppressing it like Tarkin believed that it would. I mean, you get where I'm going with this, right? right. Like, you know, they they raised the stakes so high on the Empire's side to try to suppress dissent that they actually unified the rebellion in that one movie and created an enemy that they could not overcome. And it was all out civil war. You know, the... Uh... It's so funny you raised that because it's it was a little it was sort of mildly hilarious to me to see the some of the Trump campaign folks Parscale and others uh, a few months ago <laughs> boasting that they had built the yeah. Death Star, um, and, and every you know Twitter responds with, "Don't they know how that turned out?" Um, but yeah, there was this sense that they were building this sort of all powerful campaign information machine that was going to sweep away all opposition and was going to ensure Trump's reelection. When the reality is when you sort of boast about uh, 
that you know the power you you are accumulating you create a reaction to that you you don't create a, a, a you don't engineer a sense of futility or hopelessness in your op- opponents you uh, create race. a sense of urgency in in response and if there's one thing that um, we have seen in America, the American body politic, it's that every escalation is answered not with submission, but with another escalation. And, and that is, uh, it, you know, and the funny thing you're talking about how it, you, you united, united the rebellion. One of the interesting aspects of the Democratic primary is how quickly the Democrats solidified and united behind the person they thought had the best chance of uh, blowing up the Death Star. <laughs> <laughs> and and created a you know really for the first you know the, one of the le- ultimately least contested uh democratic primaries um in you know other than when the democrats are are renominating an incumbent uh one of the least contested ultimately democratic primaries and in most uh one of the biggest routes in a primary that we've seen in a very, very long time because of the urgent desire to unite to confront the Death Star. Right. We only got a couple minutes left, so I want to actually kind of start to close where we began. You mentioned in one of your first comments and in the introduction of your book that at this moment, there is not a single important cultural, religious, political, or social force that is pulling Americans together more than it's pulling us apart. And I got to say that this made me really, really sad, David, because yes. I happen I happen to right now be writing a book and negotiating a deal on said book that was originally premised on Star Wars being an area of culture and quasi-religion that united a damn good chunk of Americans more than it <laughs> divided them. And by the time Time of Rise of Skywalker ended and the latest trilogy wrapped up, I, I couldn't see my premise as clearly anymore. It, it kind of sent me into a season of depression, honestly. It felt to me like Star Wars had slipped into the sinkhole of proxy culture war mm. where everything else currently sits. And our differences had been grafted on to this saga. Do you think that that has happened with Star Wars? I would say that the sheer... So do you... Rem- I can remember sort of the sheer joy of the first trailer to force awakens. Yeah. Sheer joy. Just sheer joy. And it was like, it was like, there's this like ripple across all of social media of bipartisan happiness. And then by the time of rise of Skywalker, I just poof, that was gone. You know, it was, um, you know, we're the, 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 even the star Wars loving community was bitterly divided not just about the trilogy, the second trilogy, but also the, you know, I mean, people were pretty united in their love for Rogue One, but Solo divided people. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it just, it, it felt like I had a, a, a lawyer colleague who um, had many colorful phrases. He's an old Southern trial lawyer. And he used to say when a case would go, start to go bad, like if we learned something about our client that, that, you know, damaged, you know, damaged our case, he would always look at me and say, David, the bloom is off the rose. And, and I thought about Star Wars, the bloom is off the rose, but that's happened to a lot of pop culture properties. I mean, Game of Thrones, think about the contention around the last two seasons, but I will say this, I will say this, there is room for optimism 
because if there is one thing that has united us in love, in pop culture love in the last year, it is Baby Yoda. It is so true. <laughs> so true, David French. <laughs> I, uh, just to, to completely round us out, I wanted to ask you one final question. Um, talking about your piece that you wrote for French Press over at the Dispatch around Christmas time. Uh, this is a nice optimistic note to end us on. Talk about choosing your identity and a new path. Because in your essay on the rise of Skywalker, you said that you were moved most by Rey choosing the Skywalker name despite the ugliness of her bloodline, yeah. despite being a Palpatine, despite her history, she chose something else. Can you tell me about why that is meaningful to you, spiritually, philosophically, politically, in the context of this book? Yeah. So I, you know, look, there were aspects of Rise of Skywalker I didn't like. A cavalry charge on a Star Destroyer was a little interesting uh, as a as a tactical military choice. But I, there was, um, I thought the Ray, um, the Ray story arc was incredibly powerful, and I thought that uh, the way that it ended was incredibly powerful. And I connected it to the story of, uh, you know, that the. the kind of the story of the, the of resurrection and Christian conceptions of salvation, where essentially what happens is when you are reborn as a Christian believer, you have a new identity, a new identity in Christ, uh, that there's a spirit of adoption, a spirit of sonship that you become a part of, you know, you are then, you are a child of God and that that is a, um, that is a rebirth into a new identity. And I thought that it was really fascinating. You know, the the Palpatine arc for Ray was almost like the original sin <laughs> that bedeviled her. It was the tug at her heart towards darkness. But then the Skywalker, uh, the 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 influence of the Skywalker, that's the you know, the dark and the light, the influence of the Skywalk of Skywalker ultimately pulled her away and redeemed her. And it was the, and the quite sort of the adaptation of that name that signified the rebirth. I just thought that was an interesting, and I, you know, look, do we, did the filmmakers have the, this kind of allegory in mind? Probably not. You know, as a Christian, I'm often seeing sort of like echoes of, of Christian allegory and things that probably aren't intended, but it, it, it actually moved me. <laughs> it really did. And I, I thought it was, a very one of the better parts of the new trilogy. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't really, I think, separate. I mean, so like, yeah, I don't think they intended Christian allegory, but you know, that Christian idea, the Christ concept is really baked into life in the Western world. Yeah. Like that, that changed the entire way the world thinks about the concept of redemption. And when I read what you wrote, you know, I just, it was a reminder to me that no matter where we have been as a people, mm -hmm. um, no matter what we were founded on, no matter the mistakes that we made, like we can choose to be a different kind of thing and we can choose to be better. Yeah. Um, but we have to know what we're shooting for, not just what we're shooting against. David French, author of Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat, and How to Restore Our Nation. Thank you so much for coming on Beltway Banthas and talking Star Wars and politics and, you know, just saving the country with us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's been my my pleasure, and, and thanks so much for having me. This I've got to talk Star Wars on a podcast more than once every two years. Well, you can do it anytime with us. Just drop us a line. <laughs> All right. Thank you. 